From Relay FM, this is Inquisitive, episode 21. Today's show is brought to you by Need, a refined retailer and lifestyle magazine for men, and Campaign Monitor, helping you send beautiful emails and get better results. My name is Mike Curley, and today I have the pleasure of being joined by Mr. David Smith. Hi, Dave. How are you? Oh, thank you for having me. I'm doing well. Thank you. Dave, what do you like to be known for these days? Funny you should ask. It's a it's funny because like the blessing and curse of having listened to Command Space and Inquisitive for so long is that of course for the last month that since you asked if I uh, could be on the show that's like all I can think about and every, every waking minute is how how do you answer the question when you go on the show is you know what do I like to be known for and it's funny because like you start off with like oh the obvious answers oh the things I make the 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 you know the the podcasts or blogs or whatever like the things you make and it's like oh that's kind of a lame answer though like oh i want to be like to be known for the things that i do it's like oh maybe it'd be better if be my answer is something like uh the person i am like you know about being a nice guy or having like i don't know it's like integrity or character like maybe that sounds a little better um but it's kind of funny like this last month that i've, I've been thinking about it i know you were going to answer it and i kept ending up in kind of an odd answer and so i figured well let's go with that the odd, odds probably more interesting anyway um but it's funny because the more I think about the question of, of, of what do you like to be known for, you kind of get stuck on, I, I kept getting stuck on the, be like that kind of the assumption that you like to be known for something. Um, and increasingly I find that actually I, I less and less actually like to be known um, that I, while it's nice and fun to have like the things that you make be well known or, you know, be, have a lot of awareness. Um, increasingly I find that, my myself being known is actually more of a distraction and a complication uh, than actually being productive. And so it's in a weird way, like, what do I like to be known for? It's like, well, I don't actually really like to be known in, in, in some ways. Like there's certainly a part of me that does, like, it's always fun to be popular, I suppose. But like, I like that part of me that likes that less more and more. And so in some ways, like, what do I like to be known for? Uh, I guess not much. <laughs> I think that if there was a medal... <laughs> For the most overthinking yes. of the question, you just won it. That was, that was fantastic. The answer is, Mike, nothing. Nothing. I prefer prefer not to. Prefer not to be known. Thank you very much. But so. but I guess that that is kind of a maybe the long way of saying the answer of my work. Yeah. You like your work to be known. Yeah. More than and, you like yourself to be known, which is an interesting yeah. uh, way of doing it. And, and I guess anybody that kind of has listened to your show and I know that we've spoken about this kind of can understand that a little bit more these days that you're kind of thinking a lot more about the way that you let the internet and the parts of it that you are public on uh, yeah. be a ruler of your life. Yeah. And, and it's understanding that in some ways, like it can be very damaging or problematic um, if you start entwining a bit too tightly your work and you personally, because like in some ways my work is just my job and it is a part of my life. It's a significant part of obviously it's a part of it that enables many other parts of my life, but um, it gets really complicated when the two get so tightly intertwined and um, it becomes important or an essential part of your life to be kind of, I don't even know, like famous and available to the world and have this part of you that's shown places. But, you know, this is all getting a bit too analog. We can probably uh, <laughs> move on to uh, more interesting things. Although maybe we should have you on analog to talk about this, actually. Well, there you go. That is that's interesting. I'm a little cross-promotion. I'm going to make a note. 
I'm making a note. Um, what I want to talk to you about today, though, is the 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 Apple Watch and Watch Kit. Yes. Um, and, and that as a platform. And kind of the way that I was thinking about this is like the wrist as a platform is kind of how I wanted to start the discussion with you today. Sure. So I know that you've done some thinking around that around this kind of stuff but pre prior to the apple watch being unveiled so were you doing this to try and understand what you could do for it or was it more just as a consumer like it, it was pretty obvious that this device was coming out so what kind of thinking had you done beforehand sure and so yeah it's just ever since i don't even know sometime at least middle of last year it's it's became very clear that there was enough smoke around an, a watch, uh, some kind of wearable wrist-mounted computer device that Apple was going to release that I started to think a lot about it in terms of understanding both like the implications that would have for me personally as well as for my products because you know it, it, if that's going to be so, if that's going to be something that Apple is going to put a lot of energy behind, then I tend to want to you know be be there and be ready. But it's really hard to build something useful if you don't really understand the what that's like, how it's useful, how it's better, how it's you know something that people are going to want. Um, so uh, sometime in, I guess late late summer, uh, early early fall, I went. I started you know getting devices. Like I first started off with like I got a Jawbone Up Twenty Four um, just to sort of explore the the personal fitness side of it of having like a device on you that's tracking you in a more concrete way and understanding that and then more recently i got uh, a microsoft band uh, which was it's a device getting a little closer to what an apple watch will be it's a little different obviously because it's a bit li limited in terms of how it can how deeply it can integrate but i wanted to make sure that i understood what this was like at a, a more than just conceptual like i wonder how i would like that like to actually use it day in and day out and see what it's like and see how annoying it is to keep these devices charged to see what ways I feel like it's natural to be reaching to my wrist versus reaching to my pocket and kind of having a sense of that. And so I've just been playing with them, you know, ever since as I'm starting to get ready. Um, and now, now that, you know, the Apple Watch is announced and Watch gets announced and all those other parts, it's even more uh, concrete in terms of like thinking about if this, you know, if this app I was writing were on my wrist, how would I use it? Um, so. So what do you think that, that kind of, you you took away did you feel like you came away and thought this is a viable platform like not obviously not the apple watch but like th yeah. this idea is something on your wrist yeah and so the thing that i'm and most of my experience with this i think is coming from the microsoft band which is a device that's much closer to an apple watch insofar as it's it does some fitness stuff but it mostly also does like notifications and some integrate you know some more uh, direct like smarts on your on your wrist, and I found for myself, it, it there are many areas where having a device like this that is con sort of available at a moment's notice rather than at a few seconds' notice, that difference actually is fairly substantial. Like having something on my wrist rather than having to pull out my phone or look at my phone. Um, or you know, go to a computer and do something like being able to in, have some amount of that interaction be entirely um, just—I don't even know—like pervasively available. That I just can look at my wrist and I can you know t tap a few things and I can see something. Like I get a text message, I can see what it is without really interrupting what I'm doing. Was really compelling, and 
Though in some ways, the funniest thing that I discovered for myself was that having a device like this on my wrist was reduced the, this, uh, the weird urge you sometimes have for feeling like you constantly need to look at your phone. Um, like there's this, the unfortunate kind of mental comp compulsion that I think we, a lot of us have developed where if we don't look at our screen, at our, at our iPhone for whatever, a, a, an hour or two, we kind of, you start to get a little bit like almost twitchy, like, Oh, I, did I miss something? Is something there? Is, do I have an email? Do I have a text message? Do I have a mention? Do I have whatever? Like you, and the interesting thing about having something on your wrist that can do that can tell you a lot of that information is I know I didn't miss anything. If I, you know, if, if my wife sent me a text message and I have my, you know, my Microsoft band on my, my wrist, you know, vibrates a little bit and I know that I have a message and I've, I've, you know, you never miss the feeling of something shaking on your wrist in the way that you might miss, you know, a phone on vibrate in your pocket or even the sound of a, a ringtone that if it isn't, the volume isn't up or you're listening to a podcast or something else is going on. And so I found that it was almost calming to have a device like this. Um, and then for the fitness stuff, I also found it was just really cool. Like I've, you know, I've, I've been using a, obviously a pedometer based on my phone for years. Um, but having a, this level of information, of insight into physically how I'm moving about the day and especially tracking how I sleep at night has been really interesting and in some ways really, you know, useful too. I think it's interesting because I, I agree with you. I, I'm, I'm a, a Pebble user and a fan of that. Um, it's it's kind of hard to convey that being more attached, i.e. having something physically on your body that's telling you about the notifications on your phone, is a calmer feeling than not having something like that. You'd think it might be the inverse because it's like part of you it's it's like breaking into yeah. different parts of your body as in you know it's physically on you and telling you or like physically touching your skin and and making a, a motion to to get your attention but it yeah. does it does allow you to decouple yourself from the notification anxiety yeah that you might receive otherwise and it it, it it really does feel like you have to use a device like this to fully grasp that, which is, I think that's going to be a marketing problem that Apple will solve, but that's a conversation for another day. Yeah. We'll need to solve, not will solve, sorry. Yeah. And, and it's, it's only, and that's honestly only one part of the benefit. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, for me, that was the most compelling part was having that, removing that kind of notification anxiety, which was something that I've been struggling with in general. Like in some ways it's a good thing for my life for me to be able to leave my phone in a drawer at my desk for more of the day than to feel like this constant, you know, this, this being somewhat attached to it. Yeah. And in a strange way, yeah, being even more connected to, techno to, the, to the technology made it easier to do that, made, it me, made me feel less compelled to always have my phone on me, both because I didn't feel like it has to, I have to have my phone on me to count my steps during a day, but moreover, like, if I get it, you know, if something happens that I need to know about, I will know about it. And so I don't have to worry about kind of always being on call and always checking and being compulsively in that way. And that was really helpful. So going into the Apple event, um, where it was obvious they were going to be announcing a watch, you know, if you were reading yeah. the tea leaves, right? What were you expecting that they would be, what they would do? It's, I, it was fairly close to what they ended up doing in terms of functionality um, like I kind of expected you could see what they were doing in terms of motion processing and stuff with 
um, like in the M7 chip in the 5S and now in the 6 with the M8, um, like they've been getting into the kind of fitness tracking side of things. And so I was pretty confident that whatever it is that they were going to do was going to have some component like that, that was going to be kind of a fitness track, you know, track, you know, track your activity level, maybe encourage you track various parts of you, you know, and have that component, which you know we have. Um, and then you kind of, if you have a device like that, you kind of expect at the very least it was going to be like, like a pebble on steroids where it, rather than just showing you notifications and showing you things, you can have a bit more two-way deep connection. And in large way, that's kind of what we got. Um, and I think that's was fairly similar to what I was expecting. The actual form factor and the way they went with like the crazy, like high-end fashion gold stuff and the interchangeable bands and all the stuff, that stuff I, would, I was a bit surprised by in terms of it's their, like I was expecting they would have, you know, Apple's typical process is to start with one thing, or at least their process in the past has been to start with one thing and then like differentiate it downstream as they go, like to, to you know, to start adding a lower end model, to add a high end model. Um, and it was interesting to, for this time, I was a bit surprised to see that rather than that, they're going from the, we're just going to start off with like, I think whatever, it's like 18 different configurations and things of device that you can choose from with you know, dozens of bands and like that was a bit surprising, but the actual functionality was fairly much what I was expecting. So do you think that anything was left out or do you think that they pretty much seem to have, have got it in the first go for what you'd expect a 1.0 to be? Yeah, I, I think it's pretty close. Um, I, I think it's obviously we, we won't really know until we have more than just a few kind of, you know, a, a few minutes on the keynote stage and a little bit of documentation on their website for what, how, how, how much of it will actually pan out in, in reality. Yeah, there are but still a lot of, of things we don't know, you know, at this yeah. stage recording today. Yeah, but, but I think functionally it's hitting the kind of parts that make sense to start with. Um, and I think the, it seems fairly focused in what they're trying to accomplish, that it is, and by that I mean I think they are, it is an accessory to an iPhone, like primarily. It is not a device whose purpose is to be um, to live on its own. It, you know, like the, the the watch is not an island. It'll just if if on its own, it's just kind of like a vaguely pretty thing that'll tell you the time. But with a phone, a phone that it's deeply integrated with, it becomes much more compelling and much more powerful. And I like that, given what seems like where the technology is at this point, that's where they went. That they pushed a tremendous amount of the hard the hard work of making a use, you know, a, a compelling technological experience onto your phone, which is really powerful and really capable and has tremendous battery life. Um, and said so, they focused on making the phone or the watch itself relatively simple, you know, relatively straightforward in terms of what it can do, um, and that allows them to probably take it, get this kind of uh, more advanced functionality into the marketplace much sooner than if they had to get all of that processing power and battery life into the watch, they can say, okay, well, the watch itself in some ways will just be a fairly dumb terminal and we're going to do a huge amount of the hard work um, on your phone, which seems a great way to start for version one. And then, you know, as things go from here, they can keep adding and expanding the capability of the watch um, in terms of what it can do on its own. But in a way that, you know, you can start with most of that capability today because the reality is most of us carry around an iPhone with us 24-7 anyway. Yeah. So it's not really a cost. 
Were you expecting them to to have developer tools ready as soon as they did, like before the release of the product, at least? I I, I was hopeful. Um, <laughs> um, I I think my my suspicion to start with, and I think this is even what I had sort of predict, in some ways predicted or expected, was that we to start with developers were going to have incredibly limited access to the watch. Um, it would be, have been mostly, even honestly, just as um, like notification, like more advanced push notifications or little local notifications and things that can show up on the watch rather than actual applications. And so when they announced um, that they we actually were going to have applications, and actually honestly, they, the way they built designed it in terms of doing this kind of cool, you know, a, a watch application is just an extension on an iPhone app, and it just runs on your iPhone and sends the display. Um, to you the watch is actually a really clever way of solving this in the meantime. And it was way more than I was ever expecting um, to be able to have, to run, you know, in very much in, in quotes, uh, full-blown apps on the watch from day one is pretty cool. So um, can, you, gonna... can you explain that part for me? Because uh, sure. this is something that I'm getting a bit lost in because it seems like that there's two different meanings to what a watch app is yes. and, and or will be. Sure. And so... So on day one, like when when Apple you know releases the Apple Watch um, in who knows sometime in the next couple of months, um, there's obviously going to be native apps that our Apple has written that will run on the watch. That you know you no matter what, if you take the watch far away into a you know away from its iPhone, you'll still be able to use you know say at at its at its simplest you know, you'll be able to set timers and you'll be able to look at look at the time and do stuff on your actual. Watch and those apps are running natively on the watch. You know, they they have no external connections to anything. They're just running natively on the watch. Um, and to start with, developers, third-party developers, won't have the ability to do that. Like nothing we do will run independently on the watch. Instead, what Apple has did is they said they created a couple of mechanisms by which developers can add extensions to their existing iPhone apps, and these extensions. Um, like in some ways, you could just think about them as they are just running on the phone, as though you, could, you know, if you imagine that you just like added a little square screen to the top of your iPhone that it was you know be displaying itself on rather than on the main iPhone screen, and that is just being shown on the watch, and on the watch, you know, you can obviously it can forward on little like other information like when the user taps on something, when the user swipes on something, pinches on something like. Some amount of that information will be passed back in a limited way to the to the phone. The phone can respond to that, change the picture being sent to the watch, and it goes back and forth. But the actual all of the logic, all of the processing, everything's happening on the phone, and all the watch is is a display to it. You know, it's sort of like in the in the way if you had a had a, if you have your laptop and you plug an external monitor into it, like that monitor isn't doing any processing. It's just showing what the you know the actual computer wanted to to display. And the same thing is happening with Apple Watch. And then there are also like uh, notifications, right? Actionable notifications that you can send, which I think are called glances. Is that correct? Sort of. So there's, there, those are two different things. Um, notif- actionable notifications is a new class of notification, either sort of like a push notification or something like that, where you can have um, user activity built into it. So... Like in the obvious example is like if you send a calendar invite for somebody, you know, you, that can show up as, a, as, a, as an invitation, a notification on their watch and says like, you know, Mike would like to have you on a podcast, accept or decline. And you can tap accept, you can tap decline 
and it'll go and do an action with that. It'll take it, you know, mark, add it to your calendar or send a declination back, you know, to the source. And those, that's one side of things. So having those kind of interactive notifications. And then the glances is mo basically just a static view that you can export from your app that from the watch's home screen, if you, if the user swipes down, I think it is on the screen, on their lock screen, in sort of in the same way that you can kind of imagine your today view widgets um, on iOS 8, um, they'll be able to have these kind of quick static views of your application that can sh you know project information. So oh, okay. you can show very quick information that, that isn't uh, the user isn't really leaving their home screen to do this. It's just kind of like a today view widget where they can just easily swipe down and check them all out. You know, if whatever. And then so say you're a sports app, you know, you could be showing the latest scores there, or um, if you're a you know, whatever, a Twitter, a Twitter app could show your most recent mentions or something. Like you could, yeah. it's something that, and if you, the user wants to, they can tap on a glance and it'll open the watch kit app more fully. But that, at that point, you know, they've left their home screen to do that in the same way that if, you know, a lot of apps for today view widgets, you know, have the ability to launch the main app from it um, to kind of get more information, to get further, to do more. Because I just know as, as me, like looking on this stuff, it's harder for me to come to kind of to get my head around it at times. Like I feel like I yeah I know what it is, and then I hear somebody say something, and then realize that I've totally lost it again. Because there's, there's you know cause there's, there's iPhone apps right, and the yeah. iPhone apps do these things, but this is like well there's kind of like multiple different types of thing that you can develop. And to me, like at least it's where it kind of I get a bit confused of it. Sure, and a lot of these concerns I think are. Are, they're mostly going to be um, developer concerns. Yeah, uh, definitely. For, from your perspective, as like for someone's perspective, just as a user, um, it's as long as your phone is in range and like the two can talk to each other. The fact that all this kind of crazy other stuff is happening behind the scenes to preserve battery life on your watch, that you know all the heavy lifting and the logic is happening on your phone, and that it's being sent over to your wrist, um, you're probably not going to be very aware of it, and or hopefully. You're not really going to be able to be aware of it, and then you know Apple has said you know sometime later next later this year we'll have native apps on the watch which won't need to talk to the iPhone. But at the you know at this point you may not even really be able to tell the difference between those two, unless your watch is out of range, in which suddenly some of your apps just sort of will become unavailable because there is no phone to do the processing for them. Uh, but to start with, it's just you may not really know the difference that that you know where like you shouldn't really have to care. If it's running on the phone, if it's running on the watch, where the actual magic's happening, as long as the magic is happening. Do you have any sort of um, grasp at the moment for how gracefully that w that would be handled? Like if your phone was out of range, we we don't know exactly. Um, I think there's been some you know some inclinations inklings towards that in kind of the developer forums and places where they talk about you know the user will be made aware that it's, it's unavailable. Um, I think exactly how that happens is kind of a mystery, and I'm sure Apple is kind of working on a fairly good solution to that. Um, but I mean, you would kind of expect the obvious thing to be it'll just give you show the user a message saying, you know, this app requires your iPhone to be uh, in range or paired or whatever. You know, please turn on your phone and bring it close to the watch to continue, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and Hopefully, I would imagine once you've kind of gotten used to that, it will be fairly obvious to users um, as long as it works reasonably well when they're in close proximity and you don't have like weird disconnects all the time and stuff. 
if you know it should be fine overall how have you found working with WatchKit so far um it's it's been interesting so it's a really in some ways i really like that to start with what there should you know, what's available to developers from day one is going to be a very focused streamlined set of capabilities like they have not given us a lot of a lot of rope to hang ourselves with like it is a very simple basic set of functionality it's fairly capable in terms of like you can do a lot with what they gave us but it's really nice in some ways to not like i have i'm pretty confident i have read you know every bit of documentation there is about watchkit at this point which is in some ways kind of crazy but like is also it's nice that it's that tractable that I can, I could, you know, I could sit down and over the course of a couple of days have completely explored something, and so it's been actually been nice to work with it in that way, where there aren't. It's not like iOS now, where iOS is just vast. Like there's a tremendous number of things you can do. You can do things in a dozen different ways. You know, on WatchKit at this point, there's only one way to do most things, and the things you can do are fairly straightforward. And there's a you know, whole suite of problems and things where the answer is just, nope, you can't do that. Nope, you can't do that. And so you can kind of just focus on, okay, well, you know, all I have is this, these couple of basic tools. You know, what can I do with that? And so it's been really fun in that way to not feel like, um, you know, to not feel like you're under, you're under delivering by having fairly straightforward experiences and, that's been, you know, been kind of nice to do. And you can just focus on like, okay, well, how can I make this useful? How can I make this quick? Um, you know, what are those types of concerns? And like, you don't, you can't do a whole lot of custom UI stuff. So, well, you don't have to even have to worry about that. You can just focus on the core experience, which has been quite nice. So would you say that it is constrained? And if so, has I assume then it's been fun working with those constraints as opposed to iPhone apps and iPad apps, which at the moment are kind of like a playground of things that people can do, I guess. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely constrained. Like, I mean, app, you know, the, you can only gather user input with, you know, the user can tap a button, they can slide up and down on a list, they can tap an item in a list and they can toggle a switch and maybe a like step, I'd do like a plus minus stepper. Like that is the entire universe of user input for the most part. And you can, maybe there's a couple other minor points, but like, it's nice to have that be constrained because especially for a device that we've never touched, that we've never seen beyond, you know, pictures and in a keynote, it's, in, it's, I remember when I first developed uh, apps for the iPad, which we were able to do in kind of the same way where we had developer tools before we'd ever laid hands on our device. Um, it was really intimidating because I had all of the tools and things I could do for for iPhone apps at the time. But now I had to apply them to a whole new platform that I didn't really understand because I've never I've never held one. I'd never thought about it. I never experienced what it was like to hold an iPad, and so that was really complicated. Whereas with this ca this case, what I kind of like is they're starting off with a really basic, streamlined set of capabilities, and so I can just say, okay, everyone's first watch app, watch kit apps are going to be somewhat simple, straightforward, uh, look fairly similar. Like there's not going to be this wild, um, playground in which people have been playing and doing stuff. Not to say people aren't, I'm sure going to come up with really cool ways to kind of exploit the constraints, but at its core, that's not what Apple's going for. 
Apple is just trying to take the ability to extend an experience you've designed on your phone onto the watch and to make that, you know, useful in a different context. And so it's really nice in some ways to just have those constraints and to then just be able to just like, okay, I'm going to work with this and run from there. There has been some uh, criticism of the amount of input methods on the watch and and because there's more than just touching there's multiple buttons and there's different types of touch gestures and 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 taps that you can do um having taken a look at how this can actually impact in like the interactivity with the device what do you feel about this i mean based on the experience that i have based i mean it's which is obviously playing with it in a simulator and watching lots of Apple videos uh, many times, it, I think it feels fairly nicely balanced um, in terms of what you can do. Like, I like that they didn't go, like there's a fair number of input methods, um, but not anything crazy. And if you think about the physical size of the devices they're going to be shipping on, it seems incredibly appropriate. Like the smallest, what is it, the 38 millimeter Apple Watch physically is pretty tiny. Uh, like it is not one of these big, ch- chunky technological devices. It's a fairly small, elegant device. And so the way in which they've approached that in terms of, you know, having seems like a lot of what you'll end up doing is with a crown on the side, which is a nice tactical sort of tactile feedback kind of a way. Um, you know, there's one big button and there's just one button kind of like with the iPhone where you just have one button. So it's easier to, um, just think about it in that way, and then you can tap on the you can tap on the crown to go home like that seems like a good balance of keeping it simple enough that it works in a small package but still giving you some richness of vocabulary as a developer to not just have you know it's not just a touch screen that you have to do everything through. There are other methods that can make sense in other contexts and give you a richness. Um, and I see, I kind of like too the way they're approaching it with the force touch thing, which is where if you push hard on the screen, you get a like the sort of like the right click for the Mac or something like that, where you get the extra context menu that you don't have to show on the screen all the time, but is always immediately available. Seems like a really clever solution to dealing with such a limited amount of screen screen real estate, both in terms of for displaying information as well as to you know, take information in with users' uh, touches. I think the force touch is maybe the one that's been criticized the most because, as you just explained it, it is kind of like a right-click and there is no right-click on iOS. But what is this menu displaying that we currently see on iOS in different places? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's going to display a lot of the buttons that you would expect to have in, like, the toolbar or the navigation bar on an iOS app. Right. So like if you have a list, so say like I have one of my applications is an RSS reader. Um, and so inside of that, I show you a list of, you know, unread articles and I have a button somewhere that's, you know, it's like mark red or mark all red or those types of things. Um, and that kind of capability on the Apple Watch, you would expose with a force touch. So you're looking at your list of items, you're scrolling through your articles, you're like, oh, yeah, I've seen everything here. I want to mark them all as red. Now, because the screen is so small, it wouldn't make sense to have a button take up like a third of the screen that says, you know, mark all red and have it just sit there all the time because you'd be wasting a tremendous amount of this tiny, you know, limited resource of space. And so instead, they're just saying you put those buttons not on screen all the time, 
you just make them available with a long press and or with, with a force press or whatever exactly how that's going to play out but you know so you do this sort of hard press on the watch the menu pops up and you can then from there you know mark red or do other actions to something that gives you a, this additional capability that you if you tried to sort of shoehorn onto the main screen would have been just a complete nightmare but you can still have that a capability right of directly available without needing all kinds of other crazy buttons all over the side or ending up with kind of like the Android approach where you have a bunch of other physical buttons that you're ta- you know all have different capab- all have different um, meanings but are always but have to apply to that that meaning to every different app it's kind of like the whole problem of a fixed keyboard on a like a blackberry where the problem is well that's great to have a keyboard if you're texting or you're writing an email but if you're playing a game it's wasted space and so in the same kind of way for the apple watch they're saying you know the, you, the screen can adapt to it without them having to have these dedicated single purpose buttons that you then have to try and apply meaning to so you're obviously kind of knee deep in this right now um, yes are you seeing positive trends from other people? Are you seeing uh, other developers that you know that are working on this stuff talking positively about it as well? Um, I'm seeing both. Um, okay. I'm definitely seeing some some developers who kind of like me are kind of excited about it, who are diving into it and kind of think it will be not necessarily like I want to say it's like the next big thing, but it's you know it will be a significant part of my year. I expect is working on and developing apps for this platform. Um, and I think there's a, you know, a fair number of people who are interested and excited about it in that way. Um, but at the same time, I've also seen uh, a lot of developers who are taking a much more wait and see kind of approach to it, who are kind of feeling like, well, I don't know, is it going to sell well? What's Apple going to allow? Um, is it worth my time? Is it worth my energy? Um, and so they kind of just have the like, well, you know, I'm not going to, maybe I'll, I'll keep my eye on it. You know, I think very few, I've seen very few developers who are just com- completely dismissing it and saying, oh no, at WatchKit, Terrible fad, not going anywhere. Instead, I see a lot of people saying, "I'll see. I'll revisit it in six months. I'll see what you know. See, see how the spring goes. Maybe revisit at WWDC and go from there." Do you think that's a mistake? I do, um, and it's a. I mean, it's a. It's a tricky question for sure. And everyone's needs are different, and everyone's motivations in business and all those other parts of it are their of their why they develop in the first place are different. Um, but for me, I kind of view it as, you know, my goal for the applications that I make, you know, I, and I make my living from my applications. Like that's my business is making applications and selling them on the app store. That's how I make my living. And my goal is always to make the best experience that I can for my customers of my, you know, who are using my applications. And that can mean a lot of different things. You know, it can mean, Making sure that it's optimized for a variety of different devices, making sure it's performant, doesn't you know it works well. There's not a lot of bugs and crashes. But when Apple comes out with a new platform that is going to allows me to further enhance and extend the experience they currently have, it it, would, it seems kind of foolish for me to not want to embrace that. Um, and I don't know necessarily if financially it'll come out paying like come out well for me. I think, like, if I had to play, put money on it, I think I, it will. I think ultimately it'll be a, a boon from the business side of my of my application. But given that I'm making a, a gamble either way, if I embrace it, I'm making a gamble. If I'm ignoring it or waiting, I'm taking a gamble. 
Um, I'd rather take the gamble in the direction that I think will be best for my customer by giving them the most enhanced experience as quickly as I can provide it to them. And so whether or not it ends up working in the long term, if you know Apple Watch is a wild success or a, a wild flop, like I'd rather be erring on that side of saying, I think this is ultimately, you know, I think this could be really awesome for my customers. And anytime I have an opportunity to do something that is really awesome for my customers, I want to pursue that. I want to make sure that that's somewhere that I'm putting energy behind. And so I think it's a mistake to kind of just wait and see because what you really are saying is, it's like, well, you know, I could do this cool thing and make my customers really happy um, or some set of my customers really happy, but you know, I'm not. And that, that feels a little funny. Um, and obviously that's an overly, overly simplified view, but it kind of has that implication to me. And so that's why instead I might, I'm putting a lot of energy in behind, making sure that I'll be ready to enhance my applications for this. All right. I, I want to talk to you about um, developing for Apple right now and some of the interesting trends that are going on there. But before we do that, let me thank our sponsor for this week's episode, and that is Need, a refined retailer and lifestyle magazine for men. Each month, Need sources and curates a selection of exclusive and fantastic products from brands all around the world. They're presented in a monthly editorial, a lot like what you'd expect to find in a contemporary men's magazine, and a shot by independent photographers. Need cares so much about how their stuff looks, how their photography looks, they actually have their own photographer on staff now to help them take awesome photos with every single edition. Need is currently offering volume 2.1, which features a wide range of discounted essentials from their essentials collection. From denim to footwear to homeware and home essentials, they have all manner of products befitting the modern gentleman. Need volume 2.2 will be launching next Wednesday. So if inquisitive listeners order before that and they can have an order of any size, they're going to receive 25% off the brand new collection next week so this is something you want to get advantage of right now so go and take a look at all the fantastic products that need has i've ordered from them before obviously matt is a friend who runs need and he has a great team and, and i genuinely believe in what he's doing so if anything just go and check out the fantastic stuff that they do because i'm sure you're going to find something that interests you and once you place your order so go to neededition.com that's n-w-e-d-e-d-i-t-i-o-n need edition of an E. So go place your order there. You can have an order of any size and send an email to hello at neededition.com with the subject line Bonanza and you'll get 25% off anything from the new collection that launches next week. As well as this, you'll, they'll also throw in an extra one or two items off that first order. This could include magazines, coffees, accessory and coffee stuff, accessories and so much more. And the first 10 orders will also receive a really cool free need hat which is worth $90. These are Ebbit filled baseball hats, beautiful hats. I've seen them on Matt's lovely head and they look great. So that's an awesome stuff, awesome deal. So go right now to neededition.com, get your first order in, get your 25% off, your free stuff, and then also you'll get to see their new stuff next Wednesday with Need Volume 2.2. Thank you so much to Need for supporting this show and Relay FM. So at the moment, Dave, there is a lot of uncertainty with Apple, especially in light of App Store rejections. It is a conversation that is occurring right now, and there's been some interesting uh, rejections and then sort of backpedaling on those rejections in light of some some of the extension stuff and the Today View stuff. And yeah. interestingly, some of this stuff kind of dovetails into what's happening with WatchKit. So how do you view 
these these kind of trends when working on something that is new and completely unprecedented. Sure. And so it is certainly something that it if you're taking any amount of like thoughtfulness into, you're going to be aware of. Um, that's I certainly think about when I'm making applications for a new platform, for a new device, for a new OS. And I mean, this applies just as much to WatchKit as it did to iOS 8 or to anything that's new. Um, is you know, you want to be mindful that you know, I, 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 my business is exists in some ways at you know at Apple's pleasure. That if if they are just if they dislike what I'm doing, it is you know their prerogative to cease me doing it. Um, and so I want to make sure that I'm you know I'm being respectful of that and like understanding that. That's their store that I'm getting the ability and the privilege of selling my apps into, um, and so I want to be, you know, respectful of of Apple and the in general the perspective that they have of you know have, having a somewhat, you know, maybe perhaps not as much as I would have liked, but they have somewhat of a curated experience that they're trying to present. That you know, there's an app review process and they decide what's allowed and what isn't. Um, and so whenever I'm developing for something new. Uh, like the approach I tend to take is is what I would kind of call like speculative development, where I try to limit my exposure to the kinds of things that tend to cause trouble um, as much as I can. And so, you know, my WatchKit apps on day one are hopefully like the way that I've planned them out, and I think you know that that I'm expecting to be able to deliver on day one will be capable, will be useful. Um, but aren't necessarily going to be wildly pushing the envelope in terms of what is theoretically possible or trying to do things that aren't the direct and obvious uh, result of the APIs Apple's giving us. You know, like a lot of the difficulties that people have had come from when they take something that Apple has created that can do, it has a main and intended and obvious function you know, like a today widget, like it has a, its obvious function is to show quick access to information. That's like its, its obvious result. And when people start saying, well, be, I could, using what the tools they gave me, do something that isn't kind of in line with that direct and obvious use. And, you know, you build other things. You build a calculator. You can build an app launcher. You can build lots of really cool and clever and compelling, you know, applications of that but whenever you if you're building one of those if you have any amount of kind of uh, awareness like you're kind of seeing that obviously what you're doing isn't directly in line with that core obvious implementation that apple was intend intending and so you're taking a risk and that sometimes is a good thing like that can really pay off if you're the first person to do something really cool and apple thinks it's really cool and your customers think it's really cool then you know you've probably done well for yourself, um, but you're taking more of a risk in that. And so what I tend to do is to be more speculative and say, like, okay, I'm going to start by developing whatever the core, obvious, straightforward, um, like in some ways maybe it's like the really simple version of how I could take advantage of this new API, of this new platform, of this new capability. And once I've got that out the door, once I've got that into the world then maybe I can start pushing the boundaries a bit more and doing other things with that. But I'm not going to start there. I'm not going to start with a really edgy version of it. I'm going to, I'm going to start with a simple version of it and you know, push out from there. 
And for me, and you know, I've been doing this for about six years now. Uh, you know, been making apps and making my living from the app store. Like, I found that to be the most reasonable approach. That I'm not putting Apple in a weird position. I'm not putting myself in a weird position. And it's kind of like a okay, they would just kind of keep going. And I've had my fair share of rejections of weird things happen with Apple, but in general, those those experiences are coming when I kind of knew that it might be coming, that I knew I was pushing a boundary, I was doing something that was a little interesting. And, you know, if that's just the the process of gradually pushing that boundary. And then, you know, if I you find you push it a bit too far, well, you ease back and then everybody's happy. And that's the way I tend to approach these things. And, you know, so far it works. And I'm applying the same kind of thing on WatchKit, where for the most part, the apps I'm making are like the obvious intended use that Apple would have had for the, the capabilities that they're giving us. And, you know, for my core applications, that's what I'm building. I'm building the thing that is straightforward and obvious and I think is very unlikely to fall outside of what Apple wants. And, you know, there are a few places where I'm maybe going to be a bit creative and I'm thinking of some new apps and some things that I might try, but those are completely speculative, things that I'm not going to invest tremendous amounts of resources into. Because I have a reasonable expectation that, you know, some of them won't work. Some of them will be rejected. Some of them will be outside of what Apple wants. And so, you know, that, that, that may just be a dead end. But for my core experiences, if I feel like if I take the reasoned approach of just saying, you know, this seems to be exactly what Apple's wanting and I'm giving them exactly what they wanted, then usually I think I'll be okay. So would you say that, like, at, at this point, you're trying to stay reserved do, do you have ideas that you think are a little bit more out there that you're holding back on until we see the the, the kind of the tea leaves settle out a bit more yes um and there's certainly some of that too of because i've never touched an apple watch in my life i mean there are probably only a few dozen people in the world who have unless you live in france yeah exactly <laughs> but uh as I do not live in France, nor do I work for Apple in Cupertino, or am a member of the press, or like, in general, I've never touched one. And so, in some ways also, it kind of works to my advantage that I think taking a more reserved approach is beneficial both in terms of being careful, thoughtful about app review, but also just in being um, not overstretching my imagination, maybe, in terms of I've never, until you actually get your hands on a device and use it and understand it, it's kind of a bit great, uh, sort of, I don't even know, prideful maybe to think that I can imagine exactly how I'd want to use it in a more dramatic fashion. And so I'm taking the, you know, the, uh, like the nice measured approach of saying, it's like, well, I'm going to be useful on day one. I'm, gonna, I'm not saying that like I'm just making like super basic, unuseful things, but it's you can build the obvious, like somewhat boring solution to something and that's still useful that's still i mean most of my applications in some ways that's what they're famous for is being obvious and straightforward rather than trying to be too crazy and fancy and so i'll take that approach here and then once i have an apple watch where you know once i've waited in line in the whatever in the freezing cold and you know have my hands on one i can start to really try things out and i can actually see how things that i'm thinking about that are a bit more uh, a bit more complicated, a bit more nuanced, might actually play out in real life. That you know, right now I'm 
I mean, I have these crazy paper mockups in my office and I'm like doing all these crazy things to try and visualize what an Apple Watch is actually going to be like in practice. You know, once I've, a lot of these things, when I actually have an Apple Watch, will finally be much more straightforward to actually just go and try. And I'm sure I'll have a lot more throwaway prototypes, you know, at that point than I do now when it doesn't seem even to make much sense to, to even try because even if it seems to like it might work on the simulator, it's, you know, it's a good chance it won't work in, you know, in practical use on a, you know, out in the world. You're becoming, I think, and I think many people would agree, uh, a little bit of an authority on WatchKit. Um, and it's because you're being so open with the stuff that you're learning with your As I Learn WatchKit series. Why are you being so open with this? There's there's two reasons for that. One, one is I'm trying to help. I wanted to give the reason I started a series called As I Learn WatchKit, and it was kind of a conscious choice, was to give myself permission to publish half formed thoughts and things that I'm not an, ep- an expert on yet. And to be like, I find that when I make things, when I write, especially like I'm not a very good writer, but um, I find that it's, I, get, I can easily get overwhelmed by the feeling of like, I can't present an opinion on this until I feel like I have the final, well thought out, super nuanced and perfect version of something. And so if instead I say, it's like the name in there, it's like in, inherent in the name of like, as I learn WatchKit, it's like, I'm saying, I don't know. It's not like, as I've learned WatchKit, it's, you know, as I am learning WatchKit, uh, I'm talking about that experience. And so it's helping me to just put more stuff out um, than I would feel like I would have given myself permission to do otherwise. And so it's nice because it helps me develop, you know, the skill of being a writer and being a communicator and an educator. And it's kind of nice in that regard. Uh, and I'm also doing it because I think it a lot, it's encouraging me to learn more than I would have otherwise because I'm, you know, I'm trying, it's like the old thing of if you really want to learn something, try and teach it to someone else. Um, it forces you to be more critical and more thoughtful than you would be if I was just doing it, learning something for the sole purpose of building my own applications. I wouldn't need quite as deep of an understanding of something. I wouldn't have had to take a step back as often and think about things from a more general perspective. And so by trying to communicate about things, like when I have an idea about like, hmm, what is, what role is this going to play in a watch app or how might this be useful as a watch app or how would I structure this technically um, by putting, having to explain that to someone else, either, you know, in written word or in a podcast or in a video or something like that, it's forcing me to have a better answer for myself um, that I can then you know, present to other people. Obviously, the benefit or the, the the reason that you're able to be so open is that the watch that watch kit is not covered by an NDA, um, and Apple seems to be relinquishing the developer NDA a bit more. Do you, do you look back and wish that you could have been this open always about uh, Apple development? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, I think the NDA always felt like it hurt Apple in a way in, in a way that was very counterproductive that at the time when I would have expected they would have wanted developers to be the most um, uh, helpful of each other to be the most um, encouraging and to be have you know provide the most resources for each other that are like self-generated previously when all of this information was under an NDA 
none of that was really happening. I mean, in some ways it was, and you kind of, you know, you, you, you're allowed to talk privately to people and you could kind of work things out that way or there was developer forums. But at the time when like Apple releases a new, a new version of iOS, at that moment, there exists only the documentation that Apple has provided to help developers make awesome things with it. And so there's no books, there's no blog posts, there's no videos, there's no anything. There's no questions on Stack Overflow. Um, and so it was tough to at the initially to, to create and craft really good day one experiences in our applications because all we had was what Apple gave us. And you know, I'm not saying they're, they did a poor job in that. The documentation teams at Apple are great, but it's still nowhere near as rich as what we've seen with WatchKit where there's Apple's documentation. Awesome. It's an awesome starting point. But then now there's all this other stuff, this really rich um, set of experiences that people are able to communicate about. And I think that help will help Apple have a much or help help Apple's customers even, honestly, moreover, have better experiences on day one, which is ultimately much better for Apple. And so it seems like, you know, I kind of wish they'd done this all along. And I think we would have had higher quality software, you know, sooner in a development cycle than we ha- may have had previously. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Like you think think back, and it kind of doesn't even make sense that it was there in the first place. Like, what were Apple trying to, to to like to benefit from this? Yeah, I mean, it always seemed like it's the kind of thing that somewhere, someone in legal or some lawyer at Apple decided that this was a good idea, and nobody either they had too much clout or they, you know. They got someone else, a higher up on the executive team to agree with them or whatever. But it always felt like they were intentionally, they were intentionally ham- sort of hamstringing their, their, the, the, you know, the, the, the impact that they could have in the developer community for the period when developers in some ways were most excited about it. And so it just never really made sense. But I'm, you know, I'm very glad that it seems to be going away. Um, but, you know, who knows what, why it was there in the past and I doubt we'll ever really know for sure, but Whatever, whatever is in the you know, the past is in the past, and now we can just move on and kind of enjoy this new, this newfound freedom to be able to talk about stuff and to really help each other as we're all trying to work it out together. I just want to take a moment as well to thank our friends at Campaign Monitor for helping support Inquisitive as they do every single week. Campaign Monitor makes it easy to design, create, send, and optimize your email campaigns quickly and easily. They have a great template builder called Canvas, which is super easy to use and allows you to create beautiful email newsletters that look great everywhere on mobile devices, on tablets, desktops, and the whole shebang. Canvas is super easy to set up. You can have an email sent out in just minutes. It's really easy to use. You can find out more at campaignmonitor.com slash templates. But you should go sign up for a free account right now at campaignmonitor.com to check out all of the other awesome stuff that they do. Thank you so much to Campaign Monitor for supporting this show and RelayFM. So, Dave, the last thing that I wanted to talk to you about is kind of going outside of your comfort zone a little bit. You've been creating videos. Yes. Why yes, you, I have. What have these videos been for and why have you been doing it? Sure. So it's something that – so for a long time I've done uh, – I've, I've done a podcast uh, called Developing Perspective, which is about – I just talk, it's just me talking about my experiences as a developer, kind of the day-to-day, some of the mundane stuff, some of the interesting stuff. And I got into podcasting because I – I often struggle as a, as using writing as uh, as a medium for me to communicate. Like I'm not a 
great writer. I feel like I struggle a lot with clarity and even grammar and stuff. Like it's not it's not my forte. But I found that I was much more able to effectively communicate out loud. That just you know I can sit down with a few notes and talk you know about a topic in a way that doesn't need the precision and the accuracy that the written word does. You know when I'm speaking, if I if I speak a little bit over myself. If I'm not completely clear, I can loop back. And people have a natural kind of tolerance for that, that they're not quite as critical as they are about the written word. You know, when I publish a podcast, I don't get people emailing me back corrections that say, oh, in the, uh, you know, at four minutes into the thing, you said you stumbled a little bit. You shouldn't have stumbled. Like, that's not how people react to to the spoken word in the way that if I publish a typo on my blog, people let me know immediately. And so it was always more or less intimidating to get into podcasting. And video in some ways is an extension of that, or at least in the way that I'm approaching it, is to try and even further, like have a even farther, a different reach and a different ability to communicate other things that are really hard to do just with words but to, to still do it in a way that is a bit more humane and a bit more accessible for me and accessible for my audience. And so I'm trying it out in terms of I'm doing some of the things that are kind of tutorials in terms of showing people uh, things in code. I'm doing things that are a bit more talking head style, which, you know, it's sort of more like a podcast, but um, where you can see my facial expressions and a few hands, hand gestures and get a sense of my body language. Uh, which can hopefully help and express even more richly the point I'm trying to get across uh, and potentially, you know, starting to add in visuals and things to that even so that if I'm trying to de describe something, I don't have to just describe it. I can show you a picture of it and talk about it. Um, and so for me, it felt like kind of a natural extension um, to try and get into that and just explore it and see how it is. Like, it's also just kind of fun. Like, I've never, I've never done it. And so... Uh, my na my nature is often if I haven't done something and I think it's kind of interesting, is like well I'll just dive in and start doing it. Um, you know I found f very early on that if I wait until I feel competent about something before I release my first thing of it, I'll never end up doing anything. And so I just one day I decided you know I'm going to try video, and so I started trying video and I kind of liked it. And you know I'm still it's still early in the process of seeing how that's going to go, but so far I've just enjoyed that process and you know we're kind of. Uh, keep you expect to keep at it. What are some of the challenges that you've found from uh, being on camera as opposed to just being uh, behind some words or behind the audit behind the mic? The strangest thing is the degree to which you have to, and, and it's a weird thing to say, but it's almost like the, the performance part of it that. Um, like right now I'm sitting, you know, sitting in a cupboard in my house, just kind of sitting at a chair, talking into a microphone and what, what I'm wearing, how I look, um, what I'm looking at, um, how I'm, you know, what my posture looks like, all these types of things are not even considerations. All that matters is that, you know, my mouth is a, you know, a few inches away from a microphone and everything else is kind of irrelevant. And the thing that's most difficult for me as I've been kind of thinking about get doing video is understanding the degree to which then suddenly other things become important. That how you, what do you look at? And how you, do you maintain eye contact with the camera? Do you move it to the side? How often do you do that? What's your posture like? How do you carry yourself and present yourself? 
have more importance in the quality of the output. Um, but on the flip side, also can have tremendous impact in terms of your ability to really connect with the person you're talking to. Because, you know, people, if someone, if you, if I look straight in the camera and I say something direct and, you know, with some, with some force behind it, as someone watching that, it has a much greater impact, most likely, than someone who's just listening to a podcast while they're driving their car. Like it, it creates a connection that I think can be much more powerful. And so it's certainly a challenge to make sure I'm being aware of that performance side of it. But it also seems like an interesting uh, opportunity to be able to be a, a more effective communicator. Do you think that you're going to continue with video? At least for a little while. Um, it's still, like I said, very early going. I think it's interesting to me as a, uh, there are some, some aspects of what I try and do. Like most of what I do in terms of creating content that isn't my actual applications um, is about trying to just help people with my own experiences. And I've always found it very frustrating to try and communicate programming type of lessons and things that I'm learning technically um, either in like blog posts or on a podcast because it's so much easier to just show you what I mean in a few seconds of video than to have to try and describe what I am trying to say in you know a few minutes or a few paragraphs of text. And so I'm quite liking that part of it now. Exactly how long and how much I'm able to do is just likely going to be limited by um, the time I have available. I mean, I'm kind of busy building WatchKit apps at the moment. <laughs> uh, but the um, I like where this is going, and I, I think I see this becoming more and more a some part of the way in which I try and contribute back to our community. Um, and I think it's a really interesting way to be doing it because for whatever reason, it isn't a way, a way that a lot of content seems to be generated right now. And so... You know, it's kind of nice to be not like I'm, it's not like video on YouTube is particularly cutting edge, but in this particular neck of the woods, it's a bit more uh, novel than perhaps it should be. Yeah, I spoke to Dave Whiskers a while ago and he agrees and, and obviously thinks the same sort of things about your show, too. Yes. Yeah, I heard that uh, that episode. I mean, it's it's a weird thing that it seems like everybody in our the Apple development, Apple news kind of punditry, whatever community, everyone has a podcast these days. I mean, there, there are literally dozens of, the, of, of podcasts talking about Apple-related topics, but there are very, surprisingly very few uh, people doing things, anything with video. And I think Dave uh, Wiskus was a great, I mean, somebody's like a pioneer, but sort of trying to change that and talk about that, both in terms of creating content himself and then also continuing that discussion and talking about, like, why is it that we aren't going doing video why aren't we on youtube why are we just kind of kind of stuck in uh on a platform you know podcasting is great but it's also limited in a lot of ways and so why aren't we exploring more complicated things why aren't we exploring another venue that might in some ways be really be a lot more compelling for a lot of the kind of things that we're trying to communicate Mr. David Smith, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you as always. Where can people find the work that you're up to? Um, the easiest place is probably just to go to uh, developingperspective.com and there you'll find links to me on Twitter, which is underscore David Smith or my blog, my, my apps, um, the WatchKit series we've done so much talking about, um, but that's probably the best place to start. 
And if you want to find links to a bunch of that stuff, you can go to our show notes, which you can find at relay.fm slash inquisitive slash 21. I'll be back next week with another episode of the show. If you want to find me on Twitter, you can. I am at imike, I-M-Y-K-E. Thank you so much to Need and Campaign Monitor for sponsoring this week's episode of the show. Until then, bye-bye.